Welcome to The Cultured Podcast. I'm Melissa Jezier, your host. On this podcast, I have conversations with culture makers in the world today to unpack the visible and not so visible forces that make up this often overlooked superpower of organizations. In season four of Cultured, we'll be diving into a topic that more and more organizational leaders are paying close attention to, how to create more inclusive spaces. We know that diversity, equity, and inclusion are high priority issue for companies today. We're seeing leaders investing in DE&I knowing that it is their responsibility to create meaningful change in spite of the history often marginalizing underrepresented groups within the workplace. But to be successful, it takes more than making a public statement supporting DE&I or hiring DE&I staff. It means a real commitment to creating an inclusive culture and inclusive spaces where employees feel valued, accepted, and willing to bring their whole self to their job. Today, we're delighted to have two guests with us from Dance for All Bodies. I'll have them introduce themselves. Hi, this is Yamur Halezarolo. I'm one of the co-founders and a board member currently. And I'm Tess Hansen, another co-founder and the current board president of Dance for All Bodies. Wonderful. Well, welcome, Yamur and Tess. Dance for All Bodies is a nonprofit established in 2019 to address the problem of the limited availability of dance classes accessible to the disability community, especially for disabled adults. Their solution has been to organize online dance classes that prioritize inclusion and accessibility in multiple dance styles. Welcome, Tess, and welcome, Yamor. Thank you. We're excited to be here. <laughs> yes, I'm excited to, to learn more about your stories. So first, maybe you can start there. Tell me about how you both came together to start Dance for All Bodies. I understand the origin was a one-time dance class that you organized for an amputee support group as a volunteer out of the San Francisco hospital. And now your classes are primarily online, I understand. So anyway, tell me your story. Yeah, of course. I'll go ahead and get our story started. So I was a volunteer at San Francisco General Hospital at the Orthopedic Trauma Institute, working primarily with amputee and the individuals who recently had an amputation or who have had an amputation for a long time. My responsibility was to organize these monthly amputee support groups. And those had a wide range of topics from, you know, how to take care of um, your amputated limb after surgery to social, emotional, financial support. But for one of the support groups, uh, people wanted something more creative and something more active. As a dancer myself, I thought, well, we should do a dance class. That's, that's exactly what this group would appreciate and would like. So I reached out to one of the organizations in the Bay Area called Access Dance Company. They organize physically integrated dance classes, but they also perform a bunch of choreography and do performances in the Bay Area and internationally with dancers who are disabled and dancers who are non-disabled. And so we reached out to them and one of the dancers from Access Dance Company came into the hospital and taught a dance class. And he was a wheelchair dancer. It was just a really impactful experience for our participants and something really eye-opening for me because I've never been in a physically integrated dance space. All the dance spaces I looked like are just what we always think about that are more able-bodied people participating in the dance class. So it was something totally new for me and something totally new for our participants too because they haven't danced since 
or been creative in that way since having their amputation and didn't really get to explore that side of themselves. And after the dance class, they were already asking me when the next class would be. And they were just in a totally different mood when they first came into the support group. So I was like, we, we need to do more of this. I need to go with this idea and make it a reality. And I was thinking about it for a long time. And Tess and I are longtime friends. We work together and we just became really close friends. And I know Tess loves dance and cares about disability rights. So I shared this idea with Tess and then we got the nonprofit started with just an idea and some shared passion for what we do. I'll add that before we got the nonprofit started, we had to write an eight-page grant to our school asking for money, and uh, we won second place in the the innovation competition, and that was where our seed funding came from, so a little important tidbit. (laughs) Awesome. So it sounds like you started off, if I understand, in the early days with your classes being in person. So my first question is, when you first started, how did you ensure the space that you had met the needs of your attendees, especially like, since it sounds like you, you don't, neither of you come from the background of working with disabled individuals. So I'm curious, how did you figure that out? What did it look like? How did you make sure it really worked? Yeah, I can start us off. Yeah, for transparency, I'm not a disabled person, but one way that Yam and I really prioritized access in our classes was thinking about physical access. Physical access is the most probably like familiar that most of our friends and family and communities are thinking about access, but it's important to recognize that it's not the only way to ensure access in any sort of event or class or like space. But in terms of physical access, things that we thought about were where is the studio relative to public transit? Because for a lot of physically disabled folks and disabled people at large, Moving through urban spaces, moving, transiting around is really difficult because not everybody can drive. So public, being close to public transit is an important piece of providing physical access. We also made sure that there were, there was a route into the studio that didn't involve stairs. Is there an elevator available? How big is the doorway? Can't, how navigable is the space if you're not walking? Because a lot of our first attendees were you know, people who had just recently had amputations or were in wheelchairs or like using like a, like a knee scooter. So we had to think about how do people get around when they're not walking? So those are important things that we thought about when planning our, our dance classes for that in-person element. Another thing, like a really simple way to provide access is to have someone like meet and greet you at the door to the hospital. Because when we had classes in the hospital, this is one room in a sea of like a huge infrastructural building with like hallways. So just having someone like myself to kind of greet somebody and pass along information, like you are going in the right direction, head this way, like even that person providing that information is a form of access too. So you mentioned there are other types of access other than physical. So maybe tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that. Yeah. Do you want to start, Yamor? Access is such a broad term, right? And it can look and mean something different based on your access needs. It can be having a fragrance-free space. It can be having just a slower pace of the class. It can be giving options to do a dance movement in different ways. 
So instead of doing a movement with your arms, trying it with your torso, trying it with your legs, or trying it with your eyes, just moving your eyes or your facial expressions. So it can really look in so many different ways. And I think that's the beauty of it. And you can just take it whatever direction you want to. Yeah. yeah, and I will add that in addition to all those things, another form of access is providing hearing access or like language interpretation for hard of hearing participants and deaf participants. So having an ASL interpreter is not physical access, but that is an essential part of creating a space where people can be a part of the dance class if they don't hear. Yeah, all those, all those make sense. How did others respond to your dance for all bodies? Like, and what surprised you the most in terms of what others responded to you about your vision? Anybody we talked to who was outside the disability and dance bubble gave us like a huge thumbs up. You're like, you go, like, this is amazing. Like, go forth and make this happen. You two are like this very supportive, so much enthusiasm. And then when we talked to people who were actually in the space, like working between the disability community and the dance community, trying to like intersect these things, they kind of sat us down and had to go, okay, are you ready? Like, it's really hard to create change like this, but if you want it, if you're tenacious and you keep pushing, it will happen. They, they sort of modulated our expectations. <laughs> what does that mean? Like it's hard or... Like if you're tenacious, like I'm here, what, what were they expecting for you to come up against? Well, I think it was a reality check in many ways. One reality check in the way that Tessa and I, both, we don't have disabilities and we don't identify as parts of the community. People really wanted to understand why we were doing this and if we're actually in it for the right reasons, because this is really difficult work and we're coming in from a position of privilege doing this work. And we have to learn and teach ourselves so much and understand the complexity of the world of disability. And just, it was a humbling moment, I think, and a good moment to reflect on um, why we're doing this and if we're actually going to be able to accomplish what we want to. And I think it was also important to understand the financial challenges of building something for people with disabilities because of the limited amount of funding for projects like this that intersect dance or arts and disability, which is a totally underfunded area compared to any other project supporting people with disabilities because when we think about disabilities there's disability has been medicalized so much that we immediately think of it and we say oh we should put money into or funding into treatments or care for people with disabilities but we don't think about the creativity aspect of disability and so it's an underfunded area and that is I think one constructive feedback that we got from people working who have been working in this area that you have to really think about how you're going to be funding this project how you're going to be turning this idea into reality and make it viable given the challenges of the funding space. That makes sense. I think, you know, it's one thing that resonates with me as I'm listening to you talk that I, I'm guessing a lot of our business leaders listening might relate to is that in the, in the topic of inclusion, 
you're always trying to learn about somebody else, right? You're always trying to learn about what someone else needs and everybody looks different than yourself. So that resonates with me when you talk about coming in with, from a place of privilege, you're not part of the community, but you're trying to learn what that community needs. Is there any advice you would have to business leaders who are trying to be more inclusive or and what they need to do themselves in terms of learning about others to improve their own spaces or their own organizations? I'll, I'll speak from my experience, something that I tried to do when we were really in the very, very, very beginning of DFAB. I read a lot of disability-related blogs written by disabled people. I tried to find resources that would teach me the language of the community because disability is a it's a cultural identity that I don't I'm not a part of but I can learn and I can learn to sort of like understand what people say when they mean like when a disabled person refers themselves as like a crip like why it is okay for them to say that but not okay for me as a non-disabled person to say that so like learning about language I think is always a really good first step I think learning about disability history like right when DFAB was starting to begin the documentary Crip Camp came out on Netflix and that I think is a really good resource for anybody any business leader who is looking to more intentionally acknowledge and think about disabled people in our society and where they might fit in their business too yeah so I, I think the resources are out there they're definitely out there you just you do have to dig you have to dig and it takes uh, it takes time and I'll add that it's always meaningful to show consistency in whatever you're doing if you're there for a long time and you keep showing up and you keep coming in with a genuine sense of curiosity then that's really impactful you were originally uh in person and now you're online so tell us about the process you use to design your classes today and how you moved from being physically to being um, online classes well there was a little thing called coronavirus <laughs> so well we incorporated dfab and became a nonprofit in like late 2019 and we're organizing classes and then boom everything shut down and we had to move virtually. And I think one of the first things we did, Yamor, let me know if I'm wrong, is we sent a survey to people like, do you want to do virtual dance classes? And people said, yes. So we said, okay, we're gonna try it. And we kind of, after that, we just didn't stop. And one of the, one of the important things to note about doing online classes is, um, though there are some unique challenges, it really does make what we are offering more accessible. Like we can just reach so many more people and it's meets people, meets disabled people like where they are at, hopefully in the comfort of their home. And they can dance from their room. They don't have to leave anywhere. They can turn their camera off if they are feeling a little more bashful. Like it really helped us sort of fulfill our mission and like take it to a new level, a new scale. Mm -hmm. So it, COVID in that sense was a really, but somehow became a positive for us in that regard. Have you gotten any feedback on people and whether they miss, do they miss the in-person classes or some folks or do they? I think they do. We have a pretty strong contingent in the Bay Area because that's just where we, in California, that's where we began. And so a lot of people who do take our classes online are also friends with these people in real life. And I think they do miss the in-person because you can't, it's just, it's really not the same. 
as good as DFAB is, it's not the same. Um, but now we have people like all over the US. We have a teacher who's based in Canada. Like, I wonder what it'd be like to like somehow have an in-person class for all these people, maybe one day. <laughs> so right now, no plans to go back to be in person, right? Like you are, you're sticking, oh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> one never knows. <laughs> you're flexible. Maybe, I think, I don't know, I see us it's like trying to navigate the hybrid line. I don't think we'll ever fully be not virtual and because of just how we have grown and the way we have shaped ourselves. But I do think there's desire for within the community for an in-person presence. And I would like that too. It's fun to dance with people. Yeah, I think everyone's finding that, right? That's why hybrid has become so popular, I think, right? Everyone still misses the... This is wonderful to be able to do Zoom or whatever it is, but there's still always, there's nothing quite like meeting someone in person, I think. How do dancers or instructors without disabilities design classes for those with disabilities? Do they gather input from the folks in, who have disabilities? Like how, what do they do? We mainly work with dancers with disabilities. We still have some dancers without disabilities who teach our dance classes, but we try our best to prioritize teaching opportunities for dancers with disabilities uh, in our organization. For our instructors without disabilities, we do have a couple of resources that we share with them and some tips. Some of them are just as simple as wearing solid colored clothing, explaining what they're doing first and then demonstrating it, giving image descriptions of themselves at the beginning of class, always identifying themselves when speaking. This is really useful for ASL interpreters. We always encourage our instructors to provide movement options. If they're doing a movement with their right arm, where they lifting it high up, maybe also doing a movement where they lifting it halfway or doing something lower down and giving options for the pacing of movements. So we do have some resources. And although we don't do a really thorough teacher training for our instructors, uh, we believe that they are really experienced instructors and they are in it for the right reasons and they're curious and want to learn more. So we just provide them with some tips and tricks for how to teach an accessible dance class. And they adapt as they go and they get feedback from the participants. We always do surveys after class and we always share those um, facts with our instructors after class so they can adjust the way they're teaching. We talked earlier a lot about access. And one thing I'm just curious about in terms of how does it create a barrier is clothing. I mean, oftentimes when you think about dance, you think of leotards or ballet shoes, and that in and of itself seems like it could be a barrier. So how does that impact you and, and, your, and your participants? I'll say that there is one of the beautiful things about DFAP is that there is no expectation around what you wear. Our classes are not designed to teach technique necessarily. Technique might be a part of it, um, you know, per the instructor's design for the class today. But the, the point and the ultimate goal of a DFAB class is to feel comfort and joy moving your body. And so there is no expectation that you need to wear 
leotard and tights there's like no like we're not trying to fit into that standard or like that ballet box you could say you know we're doing something that is different and on the other side on the probably the far other end of that spectrum <laughs> and like that's okay like both can exist at the same time and both are wonderful and like have their moments but i think that's one reason why a lot of participants like to come to our class and that's why we have a lot of adults who are in their 40s and have never danced before but like our classes because you just show up and you enjoy moving with other people the music is fun and our instructors are usually very enthusiastic and energetic and it's definitely more about community and self-expression and trying something new and it is about well, we got to make sure we look a certain way and we're going to nail this technique. It's very much more open-ended. I definitely think there's something there that, that the business world can learn from, from what you're doing, right? There's this big push right now to bring your whole self to work or can you bring your whole self to work? And so it sounds like you figured out a way to say, yes, bring your whole self to the class. Don't worry about the traditional dance, right? Like you just you're here. Don't worry about that. Right. Bring yourself and do do or do you do you you do you. So do you feel like you've made any mistakes along the way? Are there were there any key learnings on how you would do things differently? I think we've made many, many, many mistakes. Um, and I really like this question because especially when we were growing as a nonprofit, well, it was the two of us. It was just Tess and I for a long time. And then when we transitioned to online, we got a bunch of volunteers to join us. And at some point we were just constantly, all of us, we were making mistakes and wanted to acknowledge that and bring that into our like meetings, our weekly meetings where we highlighted a mistake we made that week and we talked about what we learned from it. I was just trying to normalize making mistakes because I found out that I was constantly making mistakes and learning from them. I think two examples that came to mind when I was thinking about this question was one of them, we wanted to work with this new instructor based in Germany who is ballroom wheelchair dancer. And he has been teaching for a long time, has been competing and is really awesome. And I reached out to him and he was really enthusiastic to teach a class as well. And I thought it would be a great addition to what we offered at DFAB. It was a little different from what we offer. It was more technical. And so, yeah, we decided to do a class. But beforehand, I didn't really do a good job clarifying the expectations of it from a DFAB class and what our community usually wants and needs. So I think there was uh, the needs and the expectations of the community didn't match what was delivered in the class. And so I noticed that a lot of our participants were feeling frustrated during the class or a little disappointed because they came in for looking for a DFAB-like dance class, but the dance class that this other instructor that we just recently partnered with, he was focusing more on technique and just the style of teaching was a little different from our other instructors. So that was a great learning point for me that I really need to be clear on defining what DFAB's dance classes are about and um, have a good communication with our instructors that we are initially just starting out with. And then the other one was we gave a presentation with Tess and for this presentation we had image descriptions on the slide describing what our instructors look like. And for one of the descriptions, 
we didn't confirm the image description with the instructor who we were describing, their skin tone and their gender presentation. And when they saw that presentation, the image description didn't really resonate with them. And this was also a learning point for us that or we need to have people define their, write their own image descriptions and not assume things about people based on an image of them. So, and in a world where we are constantly thinking about access and because we are a nonprofit centering access, small things like this that might seem small aren't actually that small and we need to be really careful and thoughtful about how we move forward those are those are good examples and i i'm i'm with you yamar i believe in you got to be able to confront your mistakes and no better way to learn even though it's painful at times right there's no no more painful of a learning process than making the mistake but it's a great way to learn so I understand you're expanding. That's exciting. Making programs available around the world. So what do you look for? You just talked about this mistake you made when hiring someone. So maybe we can even elaborate on this. What do you look for when hiring people to support your vision and your value? What traits are you looking for in people who support inclusive cultures? Part of our mission and our reason of being is to prioritize disabled leadership because disabled people are the most impacted and centered in our work. So one of the reasons that we transitioned out of our executive director role um, is because we gave it to two disabled people to run the org because they have the lived experience and the cultural knowledge to you know, help DFAB grow to this next level. So we still value that and disabled people are represented in every facet of DFAB from the volunteers to paid staff, to our community, on our board. So um, I think that will continue to be a priority in our expansion. And we also, in general, we look for people who are empathetic and curious and it's helpful if they have background knowledge in disability work, but it's all learnable. Like I mentioned earlier, it's all learnable. So if someone's willing to learn, that's very valuable too. It's important to also mention here that a lot of what we also want is like dependability and commitment. Like it's super helpful to have people, especially like volunteers, because we are largely, we do have a large pool of volunteers who make a lot of magical things happen for DFAB. We want people who are dependable and committed despite the lack of pay and just want to mention that there is kind of an inherent like ableism with that to expect a sort of high level of commitment for little pay because a lot of the volunteers we do work with like if they are chronically ill or if they have a disability like that like it affect it changes what commitment looks like like commitment for them looks different than like what i would consider myself to have like showing commitment you know, we have these desires and we have sort of this ideal that we want, but part of our work in DFAB is sort of being able to accommodate and sort of find, figure out what everybody who is in the room can offer so that we get to where we want to be or as close as possible. So we have our, our visions for what the, the ideal, um, you know, person we would hire, but um, everybody has something to offer in some way. And if we work as a team, usually it can get done. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? I hope so. <laughs> does, absolutely. Yamor, do you have anything to add? I think that was, that was perfect. 
in your journey, where have you found like the people, where have you found most of your support? How I assume it takes a village. So um, tell us more about how this has expanded even beyond the two of you. I think Yamar and I both want to start with someone named Danny Bicknell, who um, helped us write the grant for DFAB that began the operation. And she has been with us every step of the way as a mentor. She's an amazing person. And so just wanted to share her name. She's been incredible, a credible source of support for us. Also, Bonnie Lukowitz and Judy Smith, who are both founding members of Axis Dance Company and very active dancers in the, the disability community. Stephanie Bastos, who's one of our early, early, early teachers who taught for us when we were a little more disorganized and weren't really sure what we were doing, but has been with us through the whole thing. I really want to highlight our early participants in our classes that we organized in 2018, actually, when we tried to get a sense of what the community needs and how we can best support them with our offerings. They really helped us shape what we do at DFAB and without their input and their support and guidance based on their lived experiences, we wouldn't be able to organize or get DFAB to where it is right now. And also, I've mentioned how lovely our volunteers are, but it, this is definitely not the support of two minds, Tess and my mind. It's definitely a collective mind um, of the directors, of the volunteers, and the community members. We constantly try to get the input of our community members, our dance class participants, so that we can shape the best dance class experience for them. Wonderful. If our listeners wanted to learn more about your organization, where could they go? Yeah, so they can go to danceforallbodies.org or you can look up Dance for All Bodies on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. We're everywhere. You can find more info about us. And if you want to support our mission, then you are also welcome to donate or be a sponsor. There is more information on that online on our website as well. And we've also done a lot of um, like one-off sort of like wellness informed classes for a lot of different businesses and nonprofits. So we would love to organize and bring some DFAB energy to your, to your group if you'd like. Sounds good. Oh, so you also do work for businesses, Tess. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so DFAB has had the pleasure of working with a lot of different sort of like businesses in different fields, some really small, some like large corporations like Lowe's or like Ford. <laughs> um, and what we do is we can organize an hour to an hour and a half class with one of our really skilled disabled dance instructors to teach a sort of like midday or sort of like dance break for your team. And it's really fun. It gets everybody up and moving to whatever degree they're comfortable with. And you just support a really cool organization who's doing important disability advocacy work and your employees might thank you for it. They'll feel good. <laughs> that sounds exciting. It sounds like fun. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> So here are a couple of questions that we ask all of our guests. Uh, what is the first word that comes to mind when you think of culture? Well, I'm torn between family and belonging mm -hmm. and laughter. Well, that was three words, I'm sorry. But <laughs> I think those all come together in a package. Like to me, belonging is a huge part of culture. If there's a sense of belonging to the community that you're part of, 
then then together you can create a culture of joy and laughter which then defines a family to me and family it's not always about joy and laughter but i think if that is there then you can get over the difficult hard times together but you test I'm laughing at myself because this is an odd word, but I think of culture, like the word that comes to mind when I think of culture is like a lubricant almost like it, like it smooths out and sort of like makes the wheel keep turning and keep going. I'm sure there's a more exciting word than lubricant for that. I, but. I, I think you might be the first, the first person I've heard uh, use that. You might be unique in this. <laughs> Okay, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Yamor, go first, please. Well, I think we were talking about this with Tess too earlier, but I think I really like swimming and I would love to be able to stay underwater like a fish forever and not get attacked or eaten by a bigger fish. So I basically want to be a mermaid. I think that would be my superpower. <laughs> Very cool. How about you, Tess? What comes to mind is flying. I would love to just be able to fly. You sure are going to have all things covered. Air, yeah. sea. <laughs> Sorry. We're about you. to conquer the world. Conquer the world. So flying. All right. That's great. Um, awesome. Well, thank you both. I really, you're, you've got a wonderful story. It sounds really just exciting. And I wish you guys so much luck and success. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate this. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. We have more inspiring conversations coming soon with leaders who are innovating when it comes to creating inclusive spaces. So be sure to subscribe to Cultured wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thank you, Yamor. And thank you, Tessa. Thanks for listening to our Cultured podcast. If you like the show and want to learn more, check out our Cultured website, culturedcast.com. And please follow us on iTunes. If you'd like to know more about our research, visit eaglehillconsulting.com slash culture.